This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Dennis Houchin, the author of The Passion Principles, a guide to identifying and creating a life of authentic passion. He made this ebook available for free at all major ebook retailers. Dennis is now set to bring his messages of motivation, passion, and overcoming adversity to audiences around the globe. From middle and high school students to seasoned business people, His presentations use humor and a deep personal connection with the audience to engage his audience and help them see the world anew in a way that enables them to live a more satisfying, more fulfilling life. He teaches the same principles that he personally used to go from being a high school dropout with severe learning disabilities to becoming a highly educated expert in information technology, completing his baccalaureate of science degree and earning his master of science degree while raising a family, building a business, writing two books, building a speaking career, and most recently becoming an adjunct professor of cybersecurity at Vanderbilt University. Dennis Houchin spent four decades as an entrepreneur, software developer, engineer, and top technology executive on the cutting edge in the information technology field. He developed expertise in the areas of software development, network and security engineering, and currently teaches cybersecurity at Vanderbilt University. In 2009, he began to focus more on hacking human systems, specifically on understanding and applying the personality theories established by C.G. Young to the various technical, marketing, and operations people that had difficulty understanding each other. Dennis has addressed audience of national security and hospitality industry conventions on the subject of improving IT productivity by improving the relationships between business managers and technical service professionals. In 2015, Dennis released his first publicly available book, The Achievement Protocol, which synthesizes the disciplines of strategic planning, project management, and task management into an easy-to-use system that anyone can use to help them achieve their life's goals. Here is the interview with Dennis Houchin. In your own words, who is Dennis Houchin? Uh, Dennis Houchin is somebody who has struggled through a lot of um, issues in life, like everybody else has. And he's somebody who has been able to understand life in a way that helps him conquer some of those issues. 
he's a person who is uh, committed to sharing the things that he's learned with other people because he recognizes that other people also go through similar struggles and they they can use some some help along the way in understanding it that's my main uh, passion in life is to be able to to help other people become as great as they are uh, most people don't realize how great they are and uh, i try to help them understand that there is a process by which they can reveal that greatness that sounds wonderful thank you i have a few warm up questions for you before we talk about your book the passion principles so the first question is what is life what is life i wish i would have had a moment to uh, read these questions <laughs> life is a journey a journey of growth a journey of, of development a journey of service life is learning to uh, serve others to help others using your own particular strengths and talents you know we're not all the same my purpose in life is going to be different than yours it's going to be different than the person who lives next door to me we all have different purposes we all have different skills that we can share and life is about discovering what those are and discovering how we can not only develop ourselves but we can help others develop themselves so that uh, we can grow through this world and uh, and end up leaving the world maybe a little bit better off than than when we came into it yeah i like that yeah growing together i love that idea what do you think is the opposite of life I suppose the opposite of life is is a eking out a a kind of a, a mean existence and by mean I don't mean angry although it probably will lead to that but I mean being able to realize that that you have the ability to grow and to develop and to to conquer the the areas in your life that you feel are your inadequacies you can actually do things to change those and um what is the opposite of life the opposite of life is uh, living a, a meager existence a mean existence where you just kind of wallow in at a low level and you don't strive to succeed and to accomplish all that you are able to accomplish in life i love that dennis yeah that makes so much sense to me yeah what is the meaning of freedom to you Well, freedom is the ability to do not not only what you want to do but what you're called to do it's the ability to have your own ideas and allow other people to have their ideas but not allow other people to impose their ideas upon you you know we we all can learn from each other we all you know have lessons that we can teach others we have lessons that we can learn from others but not everything that everybody says is right or, or applicable to our lives so we we have to have the ability to pick and choose you know what we think is helpful to us and that you know that is freedom is being able to control our own minds being able to control our thoughts and our consciousness uh, to the extent that that it serves us in our development so that you know 
because in, in turn, we're going to do that so that we can serve the world and, as we said before, grow together. So that's that, that's what freedom is. When you try to impose your ideas on somebody else, you're taking away their freedom. And, and the same is true. If they try to impose their ideas on yours, then uh, they're removing your freedom. And you can never excel when, when you're uh, trying to achieve somebody else's idea of perfection. So true. And that takes self-knowledge, self-awareness, doesn't it? Yes. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? <laughs> self-awareness and self-knowledge. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Perspective. It's, 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 so, it's so important that, that we that we see not only, you know, who we are, but how we fit in the greater scheme of the world. And I think a lot of times uh, there are there are people out there, and, you know, I'm not excluding myself. I used to be one of those people that don't really have that perspective and they don't, they don't see, see themselves as being anything, you know, more than than you know the time that they spend in, in a given day, you know, and so they they look for things that make them happy uh, during the day or during the night, and and that's what they think happiness is, and and that's not really what happiness is, and that's not what what joy is, and that's not what passion is, and uh, so the, the the need that the world has right now is really a deeper awareness of who we are, you know. Uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, a Jesuit priest from the uh, 1800s, early 1900s, he said that we are not humans seeking a spiritual experience, but we are uh, spirits seeking a human experience. And so many of us don't recognize that. The human part of us is... uh, spending too much time taking control or trying to take control and not allowing the spiritual part of us uh, to develop and grow the way that it needs to. What is love to you, Dennis? Well, love is, uh, to me, is like all of these uh, words, I think it's a very misunderstood word. Love to me is not, is not emotion. It's not an emotion. It's not an, not a feeling. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, equate love with some kind of intense attraction or intense desire, and and for me, love is is more profound than that. It's a it's a deep it's a, a deep power that that arises from our ability to have empathy with others and and to care about other people. Yeah, it goes back to that idea you mentioned earlier, growing together, right? That I very much agree. Yes. Um, what, where, and who is God to you? Well, I'm glad you added those last two words in there to you because, <laughs> yeah. because I, I'm not going to pretend to know who God is. You know, the people have, have struggled with that question for a millennia, ever since a man could think, he's been thinking about that very question. For me, God is the creator of the universe, and he is the source of all knowing, 
He is the source of all love. God is love. Uh, he, each one of us, that spiritual part of us that I was talking about, is a, a connected part of God. So each one of us carries around a, a fragment of God with us. Not that God is fragmented in any way, but but each of us has a, a little uh, taste of God within ourselves. And the ideally, what we want to do is we want to live our lives in such a way that that, that little piece of God can shine as brightly through us as possible. I, I um, spoke to my my son about this long long ago when I was um, when I was raising my kids. I talked to him about I had a, a piece of acrylic uh, that I had shaped into a, a dome, and I had I made it into a uh, made it out of a mold, but the mold was rough and the surface was crude. So you couldn't see through it. So I I showed him how how it was opaque and you couldn't see anything and, and it didn't do any good. But then I gave him a task to do and I had him start polishing it. We used you know different waxes and stuff to to rub it, uh, rubbing compounds and and he rubbed it and he rubbed it and he rubbed it and it, it took days. You know this was a this project to keep him busy. You know when. Uh, to keep him out of trouble. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> yeah. but he kept doing this. And, and eventually it got so, the surface became so clear that it could be used as a magnifying glass. You could, you know, put it on a sheet of paper and you could you know, read the enlarged words through it. And so then I explained to him that a God is, is like that. God is inside of us, but we are imperfect vessels. And so the, the more we work on ourselves, the more we can clean up our human selves, the more perfectly we can kind of express that light of God that that is in us. You know, regardless of who we are or how horrible we are as people, um, and some of us, you got to admit, are horrible people. But no, you know, whether it doesn't matter how horrible you are or how wonderful you are, we all have that same piece of God within us. And we all have the ability to let, to shape ourselves in such a way that that piece of God can shine through us. Yeah. I like that a lot, uh, Dennis. Everything you said resonates and makes so much sense. I just wonder if God is also in the um, imperfections, if the uh, what we perceive as horrible those people or those, I don't know, events, they have a purpose, like what's happening now. Who knows? Maybe this is happening for a reason that we, we can learn from this. We could learn profound lessons of wisdom. Yes, I, I think it's absolutely true that we can learn uh, profound wisdoms. And I think that, that pain is an opportunity for us to learn and you know it, it doesn't mean that there was a a lesson necessarily intentional within the pain but it's an opportunity for us as thinking beings to to reflect and and understand you know kind of the causes of that pain and and what you know, what might be done to avoid it in the future and and you know with knowledge is so we we 
live on different levels of, of knowledge all the time. You know, we have a, a literal uh, knowledge, but there's also metaphorical knowledge. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult to distinguish which is the more real or the more relevant to us, whether it's the metaphorical knowledge or the literal knowledge. But so many things are are have lessons for us on on the all of these different levels that you know it's wrong to to you know pick out one particular idea that you get like learning to uh, not shake hands maybe that's the lesson well that may be a lesson but there may be some deeper lessons uh, within uh, the spread and and the quickness of this environment and and not only in the uh, the spread of the virus itself, but in the way we've reacted to it, what can we learn about the way that we've reacted to it as individuals and, and as our leaders have reacted, you know, what are some lessons there and, and do they have some more uh, deeper meaning than just what we, you know, see about and read about on TV? Right. Right. I love what you said um, just now about the, the, the opportunities, challenges are opportunities and that made me think about self-awareness and self-knowledge again. If we are self-aware, then it's easier to see these challenging times or situations as opportunities. Yes. So true. So let's talk about your work. My first question has to be this one. What is your definition of passion? Well, my definition, again, is like, and you might have guessed already that I I tend to go into words rather deeply and I look at the beginnings of, of words and how they were created, their origins, and and I do my best to, to really understand what they meant and what they were intended to mean when they first started out and then how they evolved in the process. And so, and I didn't realize this so much uh, before I wrote this book, The Passion Principles, I had a, an understanding of passion that I thought was shared by everybody. And I thought that because it seemed to be a widespread understanding within the, you know, the circle of friends, uh, circle of associates that, that I was with. We all had you know, similar understandings of what passion was. But then uh, when other people started reading my first book, The Achievement Protocol, and, and they started telling me, you know, about their struggle with passion and not understanding it, I, that's when I realized that, hey, you know, <laughs> not everybody understands passion the way I do. So right. here, passion for me, its literal meaning was it was a word that was created in order to express the pain that that Jesus went through when after he was arrested and and he was uh, tortured and then crucified, all of that that pain that happened, you know, during that that period in his life after that last supper, and that was the reason that the word was created, and so the root of uh, the word passion is a word for pain and the in the same root for struggle it's also it's the same word uh, that is the root for patience so when i think about passion and i think about having 
having a life passion. It's not about what is fun, you know, necessarily. It can be. It's not a, about what is pleasing. It's about what do you love so much that that you are willing to literally go through intense pain in order to uh, achieve. So when I hear about, you know, somebody talking about their passion, it's, it, you know, I, I reflect on people like Mother Teresa, who, you know, served in the streets of Calcutta in India and, and all of the, the poor people that, that she served. You could not say by any stretch of the imagination that she had an easy life or that it was a, you know, a, a joyful life in the way so many of us think about joy. But she was acting out her passion, and she was willing to go through that because she was doing her mission was that important to her. Now, you would never hear Mother Teresa complain. It, she had this pain, but she she knew that that was a part of the 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 game. She knew that you know that was just a part of her life. She was probably, I imagine, she was probably one of the most fulfilled persons that have existed in history because she knew from a very early time what her passion was and she found a way to fulfill that passion every single day and so although she was you know she wasn't rich she wasn't uh, you know didn't have money she didn't have power in the way that that a lot of us think of power she had something that was far more important to her, and that was the successful completion of her mission. And, and when I talk about success, again, another word that, that I think is profoundly misunderstood is success is the ability to achieve those things that are important to you. And it's, you know, it, it can be the acquisition of, you know, financial wealth. You know, that can be a part of success, but it doesn't have to be. There are successful people in all walks of life, in all income brackets, and success is more about how fulfilled you are internally, how how you feel that that you've accomplished rather than how much you've acquired. I didn't know that passion was connected to, I mean, intuitively, I, I knew, but not in the way that you spoke of connected to pain and patience, in meaning, in purpose. That makes so much sense. Right. Let's talk about your book. What was the inspiration, intention, and the process of writing The Passion Principles? Okay, so I, I mentioned this briefly, but this is actually my second book. The first book I wrote was called The Achievement Protocol. And the achievement protocol uh, kind of is a summation of a lot of the, the practical lessons that I've learned in life. You know, having achieved my success, you know, I, I've, uh, I, for, by the time I was 33, I had started my own business and I never had to, to go, you know, beg for money or beg for a job after that. You know, I was self-employed and, and that was in 1994 is when I first started my, my business independently. 
I had had another venture where I had partners, but that didn't really count because I was too young to realize what was going on at that time. Uh, but in 1994, I started a an information technology business, and you know, my, I had a direct relationship you know, with all of my customers. You know, I didn't have I didn't work for somebody else. I I went out and found the people that needed the kinds of things that I could provide to them and, uh, you know, negotiated what they would pay for it. And, and uh, that served me quite well for, you know, uh, 35 years. Well, I wasn't in business for 35 years, but I had an IT career for 35 years. And so it allowed me, uh, so in 2014, I, I decided that I needed to maybe uh, think about slowing down a little bit and uh, it was uh, the apex of a lot of different things happening in my life at that time. My my youngest daughter graduated, uh, was just about ready to graduate from college. And uh, my youngest boys have already uh, completed theirs and were into their careers. My daughter had it was lined up to go into the military. She had her career. She was all set. So we decided to um, evaluate what we were doing. And I decided, well, one of the, well, actually it was a conversation with my daughter that led me to uh, conclude that what I needed to do was write out some basic instructions, like a how-to book on how to achieve things. Because so many of she inspired me with that because she came home one day and said so many of her friends, you know, getting close to the end of their college careers, they they don't really understand what they want to do with their life. They don't know how to how to um, successfully navigate the last year in college, and and so she wanted my wanted to know if. I had any way of helping them, and I first thought about an app, and then it it became a book, and the uh, the book, the achievement protocol, is written in order to give people a you know kind of a practical guide to how to set a goal and achieve it. And I know you can use it for small goals, but what I've got written in the book, you can also use you know for life goals for for the things that you decide you want to do when you're you know, 13 years old and, you know, if it's meaningful and it shows you how to evaluate that, then it shows you how to go through the process of, you know, making that happen. So when I wrote that book, I found out a lot of people were reading it. And when I would have discussions about it, I would hear the same question over and over was, how do you know what your passion is? How do you how do you find your passion? Um, and when I would start to explain, you know, kind of the ideas about passion that I had, like that it was about what you're willing to have, you know, go through a lot of pain for, they, you know, they're suddenly like, well, no, I'm not really, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not what I want. I want the fun stuff. Give me the fun stuff, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, there's a widespread miss understanding of what authentic passion, the kind of, there's lots of different passions and, and the other ones are, are valid too, but the kind of passion that leads to a fulfilling life is one 
that is different than what you know the pop some of the popular ideas about passion. So I decided to write the passion principles to help people uh, distinguish, you know, and help them see a a different view of passion than maybe they they have been exposed to. And so I I wrote this and I set it out on Amazon to uh, for free. I made it free on on multiple platforms. So any place you get eBooks from, you know, it can be downloaded for free. Uh, I don't charge anything for it because I think it's something that, you know, I want everybody to live a fulfilling life. And and you can't do that until you really understand that, you know, living a happy and fulfilling life does not mean living a life without pain. Pain is, is going to be part of the process. And and you can it can be a useful part of the process, um, but it's going to be there, and you can't avoid pain and expect to to live a life that you're proud of in the end. Wow, that is such a um, insightful advice and thought, because most of us tend not to think that way. That a meaningful life is it's supposed to be a fun one and always happy, but it's not. Yeah, that's not realistic. So let's talk about the chapters in your book. Chapter one, it's uh, about the pursuit of passion. And I selected a um, passage, and I have a few questions for you based on that. So you just mentioned authentic passion, and this is what you talk about here. Authentic passion is grounded on our deepest core values and one that consistently directs us to higher consciousness. Basically, this is what you wrote there. So I have uh, three questions. One, the first one is about values. What is the difference between values and beliefs? I guess it, in some ways they are synonymous. It, you can have, I think you can have beliefs that aren't necessarily values and certainly that aren't core values. You can believe that uh, everything is fine at home. That's not necessarily a core value. <laughs> And things may or may not be fine at home, you know. The the so you can believe things that aren't necessarily. Or you can have a belief that isn't necessarily a core value. But all of your core values tend to be beliefs because it's at at the very you know essence of who we are and and what our consciousness is. We we don't really have. We're not computers, so we don't just have strict input data that we know has been validated and, and is true, right? Um, with, uh, with a computer, you can, you can have that. You can check to make sure that a, a string has only ASCII characters in it. But with our consciousness, we don't do that. Our, our values uh, come into us uh, usually at a, a fairly young age. We, they start building, and they're shaped by, you know, the, the people who uh, are raising us, you know, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Um, they, but the environment that we're raised in uh, helps create our values, plus our own personal disposition. Uh, we, can, we can be uh, predisposed to be cynical and therefore interpret things and experiences that happen to us differently than a person who is predisposed to be optimistic. They, they can interpret the same actions 
and same experiences in a different way. Uh, I, I have a twin sister and I've got several brothers, a couple of brothers. Uh, my parents had five kids and my, uh, my sister and I were the youngest in the family. And if you were to take any of us one at a time and, and take us into an, an interview room and ask us about our parents, uh, about the important parts of our childhood and our child rearing and what our parents did right and what our parents did wrong, every single one of us would give you different information and, and a different story. Um, Oh, that was a, uh, a a painful realization for me when, when uh, you know, I had some ideas about my parents and my mother, and and I found out that you know, my brothers did not share at all, you know, my, the way that I understood what was going on in our childhood. So, but all of that was was a growth experience, and so what happened to them, even though we all grew up together, we were all in the same house, all experiencing the exact same thing. They got a different set of values from those experiences than what I got. So, uh, so values are, they are, they are beliefs in that there's, there's not just raw you know, 100% fact that you can say this is what happened and this is the truth. Um, so you have to qualify it. And uh, But if you understand what those values are and how they affect your life, you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to accept them if you find that the, the values that you've been given are wrong or or they are skewed in some way. You can you can change them and you can correct them. And it takes effort, um, but you can fix those things. And, you know, I, you know, I thank God that I was able to um, find a a way to to do this. You know, once I left a, a pretty toxic environment in school, I was able to find a way to essentially get my mind right about what, my core values were and in what life was really about. And I did it in, in record time, I think. And so from a very early age, I've kind of felt like I've had a head start. And that's um, incredibly wonderful. I guess my question about that, how did you do it? Um, most of us, for most of us, it takes years, so many years. My case was like 38 years to find out. Well, my passion was. <laughs> so uh, what, what happened was, this goes back to my uh, time in high school. I was, even before that, when I was about six years old, I developed epilepsy. And I had petty mal epilepsy. And for the listeners that have never experienced that, there's two different types of epilepsy. There's grand mal and there's petty mal. And with grand mal, it's clear to everybody that you're having a seizure because you lose all muscle control. And, you know, if you're standing in a room, you might, it might look like you're throwing chairs around or, or running into people and things like that. 
because you just lose complete control of your muscles and, and your muscles no longer do what they're supposed to do. And then you convulse on the ground. Usually that's where you end up. And, and it's a very dramatic scene to witness. With petit mal, the seizures are actually almost invisible uh, because they're, they're called absence seizures. And it's like, to experience one, it's just like, like a sliver of time has been taken out, like a 20-second period of time disappears and just doesn't exist. For example, if I'm talking to you and I'm speaking and all of a sudden I have a seizure, there might be, <laughs> I, I, I shorten that because I know we're, we're on time limit, but there's going to be a, a brief pause. And it, it usually is more like 20 seconds or so in a, in a seizure. And, and then I'll just pick up right where I left off. And uh, if I'm talking, you notice it. If I'm just listening, you won't notice anything because it just looks like I'm just listening and I have a seizure. But I've missed 20 seconds of what you said. And so that led to teachers thinking that I had a learning disability because they would teach me things and they'd tell me things and and then they'd say, do you understand? And I'd nod my head and, and then I wouldn't be able to repeat what they said. <laughs> and so so I, I got rid of the epilepsy about, I outgrew it about the time I was 13 or so. And then my, but my, my peer group, you know, I was still going to school with the same people that knew me when I had the seizures. And, uh, and, and I was, an, you know, an object of ridicule because of that, because I was different. And we all know how, how cruel kids can be. So the same people still knew me from when I had the seizures. It didn't matter to them that I didn't have them anymore. They treated me as if I did. And the same was true with the teachers. They, you know, they just knew that I was incorrigible and, and couldn't be taught. And so they treated me that way. It wasn't until I got out of, I dropped out of school when I was 16 and I, got away from that environment and started interacting with adults or, you know, people who were at least, you know, some, some were, you know, in their mid thirties, but some were a few, just a few years older than me. They didn't know that I had any baggage like that. They didn't treat me like I had a mental problem. So they discussed things with me and they discussed ideas with me. And I started reading books that, you know, nobody thought I would be able to read, you know, just a, a couple of weeks before that. Uh, and so I, I started having discussions and I, I realized that I'd never actually had a learning disability. The teachers had a teaching disability. And when I realized that and I realized it wasn't something wrong with me that was causing me to be unsuccessful in school, I became... I became a student and I started reading and discovering ideas and I discovered ideas. I think probably my first exposure was from Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. And, and he gave me some really great ideas that I, you know, since, you know, found in other books, you know, from other periods of time. And, and I thought to myself, you know, if this stuff is real, I've got to share it with people. If, if this can help me become successful, then it can help anybody become successful. And uh, 
you know, I had as many limitations, as many weaknesses as anybody I can imagine. And if I can come out of that abyss and claw my way back up to the top, then 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 anybody can because I had you know there was nothing special that would have necessarily predicted that I'd be able to do that. Um, so my passion from 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 that time has been to help people understand that they can do so much more than they might believe that they can. And that's a wonderful work. I love what you do because, yeah, most people, they believe in their own limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you mentioned higher consciousness. What does it mean exactly, Dennis, when you say higher consciousness? The higher consciousness is uh, is that part of us you know, that I was talking about earlier that is, you know, most directly connected to God. It's I wouldn't say it's necessarily the the raw God material, if you will, but it's it's that piece of us um, because it, it it operates through our physical brain. It can't we don't necessarily have it without our brain functioning. So it is a, a manifestation, sort of of our our physical ability uh, to be able to have consciousness, but. It's it's that piece where our our true values, our true true sense of purpose, our true identity, where all of that really resides, and it it um, it's kind of who we define ourselves as on a very very high level, and and I I need to be careful in talking about this because while. Because whenever we talk about God, it it just gets messy because uh, we know so little and we think we know so much. But the thing that what I believe about God is that he is indivisible, you know, that he is, you know, there is a God and it is a whole God and you don't have individual parts of God. But in our experience of God, we kind of experience him in part. (laughs) So so our human experiences are are not dealing with with the raw God nature, if you will. Um, But our higher consciousness is kind of that that doorway that that opens up into, you know, where what would be God resides. And that, you know, that's the most purest sense of who we are. And and all in our most direct access to the things that are good and holy. Yeah, yeah. So in chapter two, you talk about the perception of passion. And do you want to make a comment about this chapter? Well, I would just say that the perception of passion is something that uh, evolves over time. So as as we grow and become more self-aware, we are going to have a better understanding of what our passion is. A lot of times our, our passion will, will operate and we will behave in ways that serve our passion without really understanding what our passion is. And, and we just do that accidentally and we stumble along until, you know, one day we realize that all of our, all of our decisions, not maybe not all of our decisions, but many of our decisions up to that moment have led us 
into these different experiences, which have helped us realize this passion that that has actually you know been there all along. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, chapter three and four, uh, three you talk about pain of passion, which you have been talking about. Two you talked earlier pleasure of passion as well. Um, now, chapter five, you talk about presence of passion. And this is a very interesting one. You have been talking too about children and encouraging them to, to follow their passion. Uh, talk to me about your son, Wayne. All, all of my life, I have been discouraged from pursuing my passion. You know, when, when you tell people you're reading Think and Grow Rich and they've never heard of it before, you know, they just, they laugh at you. And, and, and I'm not talking about acquaintances. I'm talking about people that are your deep, you think are your deepest personal friends, you know, they, they mock you. And so I, I experienced that on my own, but, but then I'm able to see it and happen in so many other places, you know, so so many um, kids and psychologists have this um, understanding about child development. And most of them agree that it's around the age of puberty when all of the pieces and parts are together enough for people to actually develop core values and passions. Personally, I think that that process has already begun and it just culminates about the time that you hit per puberty and it's able to be expressed. So I think you can see hints of somebody's passion early on, but then then we go out and if our passion doesn't line up with what people think is normal in society, they just do everything they can to squash you because they don't want anybody rising above the herd because that makes everybody else around them look bad. And I experienced this in my... I'll get to my son in just a second, but, <laughs> yeah. but I experienced this in my professional life. It wasn't too long ago. I was with one of my clients and uh, we had a presentations that we were all going to give for an important quarterly business meeting. And I developed my presentations and kind of shared it with some people. And then, you know, I did my presentation kind of independently of everybody else. I wasn't really thinking of who was doing what. I was just trying to do the best job I could do. And the feedback I got from one of them was really a scorn because he he was irritated that my presentation was so well thought out and so well prepared that his was going to look like nothing. <laughs> and you know, I, I, okay, I'm sorry for that, but I'm just doing the best I can. <laughs> and uh, so, but, but that's where, what people do all of the time when they see you, somebody starting to excel, they'll, you know, doesn't matter how old you are, they, they do it and they do it all through life. So my son, Wayne was, um, was always interested in magic as a child because, uh, because I had an interest in magic and I, Kind of, he was, he was one of my first audiences because. <laughs> <laughs> That's so know, cute. <laughs> at, at three years old, I could make a coin vanish, and he would just be amazed. <laughs> um, 
But then as he got older, you know, we we would watch uh, David Copperfield videos and such on uh, TV and record them on our VCR. <laughs> and and we we got an opportunity to go see him live uh, when he was, I think it was like five years old at that time. But so he was, he knew what magic was and he, he knew he, he liked it. And about, I guess he was nine years old. He started making, well, he was, uh, he was behaving in ways that nine-year-olds typically behave and, and starting to show signs that, that maybe he was pulling away. So I wanted to pull him back uh, into the family. And so I, I talked to him about his life and, and what he actually wanted to do with his life. And, and he said that he wanted to be a magician. I, you know, I, this wasn't a, you know, yeah, quick question and answer. I told him to go think about it. I said, I want you to just pretend that you could do anything you wanted for the rest of your life, but you had to do it, you know, all the time. What would you want to do? And so he went and thought about it and he came back and he said he wanted to be a magician. And so I started um, working with him teaching him things. And, uh, you know, I could tell that he, his interest was sincere, that it wasn't just a fad for him. And finally, when he was like 12 years old, he had his first public performance. And today, at least up until the coronavirus came in, he's performing magic every day. And he's 37 years old now. And and, and he does it every day. And that, that's his livelihood. He's an entrepreneur. He's completely self-employed. So he and his, his wife live in Chico, California. And he, te- he, he, not, he not only performs magic, but he teaches magic. And actually, earlier this year, he had an opportunity to go back to China. He's been to China, has been on some major uh, television shows in China. And he had an opportunity to go back, but but that got canceled, and and that was just before the uh, coronavirus uh, came out in Wuhan. And in, in fact, the last time he was on a trip to China, he was in Wuhan. That is incredible! What a beautiful example, Dennis. Yeah, of not just following your passion, but being supported to do so. So when his when he was 16, he went to his pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, "So what are you going to do get do for a living?" And he said, "I'm going to be a magician." And the pediatrician says, "You can't do that." No, I'm talking. I mean seriously, what are you? What kind of job are you going to get? You can't support anything. You can't support yourself being a magician. And and he was serious. He was the he was actively being discouraging, and I couldn't believe that. You know, I, I can see disbelief. I can see, oh, well, gosh, good luck with that. But no, he was actually, actually saying, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. That's a stupid thing for you. He didn't say stupid, but but that's what my son walked away with is that the, the guy said it was a stupid thing to even try to do. And that just burns me up, you know? Yeah, because people don't have the courage to follow First of all, they don't know themselves well to even know what their passion is. Yeah. And then when they find out, they uh, they don't have the courage yeah. to follow it. 
it's easy to know uh, why they discourage others. So they try to do it because they don't, yeah, they have not lived that life. They don't have the experience. Like it has been said, you can only give what you have. So that's what it is. Thank you so much for giving what you have. <laughs> a lot of wisdom. And that's what we need more in the world. Continue with your book. We are almost at the end of the interview. And the book has 10 chapters. And you talk about the precision of passion. You talk about persistence of passion, which is a very important one, chapter seven. And then the payment of passion, which you talked earlier about success, the definition of success. And you actually mentioned um, Bob Dylan's quote, a very good one. I love this quote. <laughs> it's a song. I think it's part of the song, right, that he sang, I'm not sure. A man is a success if he gets up in the morning gets to bed at night, and in between, he does what he wants to do. Right. In chapter 9, uh, you talk about... Um, the plurality. Yes, right. Having multiple core values and multiple passions. That was an interesting one. Yeah, we, we aren't just uh, monolithic creatures with just a single passion or a single mission. There, uh, there's... Uh, different areas of our lives where, you know, one passion might be relevant and another passion not, you know. So, yeah, that that's important to know that uh, we're not just, we don't just have, you know, one purpose. We might have multiple purposes depending on, you know, the areas of life that it operates in. True. And how do we choose? How do we know the most important one? Well, I, I think that's a, a matter of, you know, deciding which one is going to, which one, if if you could only do one, which one would that be? Mm, the question, yeah. Yeah, so in just it's setting priorities and, and you know, the, the, the season of life that you're in has a lot to do with it. So like we t talked about the Grandma Moses and her, for a long time, her passion uh, was raising her family and, and, you know, being a good grandmother and taking care of her grandchildren. And it, when it wasn't until she was over 80, you know, when most of her grandchildren no longer sat on her lap, <laughs> that, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that she started actually going back to an earlier passion, uh, which was art. And but but uh, and she started painting again, and and she was able to sell those paintings for quite a bit. But um, you know she never gave up that first passion of, of producing art because that's just something that was in her blood. But she she was able to uh, commingle it with her passion for her family, and so um, she used it you know her knitting skills and to express her art in a way that also uh, satisfied her passion for family. Yeah, that makes sense. We can integrate the other passions, right? Right. Within. I love what you said about, yeah, the seasons of life, right? I like that. And um, the last one, chapter 10, uh, the payoff of passion. And then you mentioned Socrates and one of his famous uh, quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. Right. And which is kind of what I described, you know, when you said, what is the opposite of life? It's a, a mean existence where you're not striving for something, 
uh, because you just you're apathetic, you don't care, you know whatever whatever the reason is. Uh, but uh, so it it's helpful to go through and 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 goes back to that our first discussion about self awareness. If you're not self aware, it's going to be really hard to grow. Or so true, and that's another thing. What would you advise? young people or adults, all of us, to do to become more self-aware? Turn off the entertainment. Uh, turn turn off Netflix and uh, uh, turn off your beats. Just <laughs> be, be, think quietly and, and, and think about things and, and read something. And then after you've read it, think about it. And uh, th think about, you know, think about it from, from different angles. You know, take different sides of an argument. And, you know, just the, the act of thinking and considering things, I think, is, is what people uh, need to do. And I think that would be, be helpful, you know, for, for anybody. But um, just spending time, and, and some people have, have minds that, are, that well, I think, it, I think it's true that uh, busyness is antithetical to happiness. And, and we are so busy trying to do things that will make us happy that we're really missing out on, on what true happiness is because we're so busy, we just don't realize how miserable we are or how much we're missing happiness. Um, That's true. I thought about the distractions yeah, before you said, we talked about TV and the yeah. Netflix. Yeah, we are. We are looking for distractions, most of us do, rather than reflection, right? Yeah, and that is a really hard habit to break. That I spent a lot of time trying to break that habit early in my life, and, and fortunately I was able to overcome it. And it was easier for me because I was an introvert, so I wasn't energized by external interactions the way an extrovert is. So, you know, I had that the, that the advantage of my disposition there, but everybody can learn to sit quietly and, and to think and, and sometimes to not think, you know, sometimes uh, meditate. And when you meditate, don't, you know, try to solve all the world's problems, just be. And if you can sit and just be for a few minutes, even if, you know, even one minute, what two minutes, you know, take whatever piece of silence that you can get and just uh, be there and, and be in the present moment, then you'll find everything else around you is expanding. Yeah, that's such a great advice. Meditation. Yeah, I agree. So my final questions to you, um, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? That's one of the hardest questions to answer. I've learned a lot of hard lessons <laughs> about myself, and, and most of them didn't come easy um, because I, I'm a, I am a hard-headed person. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I think one of the most you know, profound lessons that I learned and maybe maybe the hardest was that so much of our existence exists in the quality that it does because of our mind because of because of things that we can control 
And I know that that there are people that are suffering that will hear that and say, oh, no, I, these things, my life sucks, and this is why, and thinking doesn't make it go away. No, thinking won't make it go away. But, but by changing the way you view things, you change the way that they affect you. We can't control what happens to us in life, but we can control how we respond to those things. And we can control how we decide to interpret those things. Like I was talking about, you know, values and our experiences earlier on. We need to learn to uh, interpret things in a way that's going to be beneficial to our future and not things that will uh, keep us and hold us back and keep us from developing. So true. Yeah. So it's being open. Yeah. I love what the word you, you used, um, changing our minds, the way we think, uh, shifting perspective. Right. So my next question is about, yeah, if you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any changes in your life or do anything differently? Great question. And this goes back to when I was in college and I had just learned that I could learn. So I had I'd been in high school, failure. Now I was in college. Uh, I was the youngest person in any of my classes because I got to college before my uh, fellow high school students had even graduated high school. And I knew that I could learn. But I knew that uh, the tests were, were intended to test my knowledge. So other people would cram for tests the night before so that it all be fresh in their mind. But I went into a test without doing that because I was determined that I wanted to find out what I knew. And if the test showed that I didn't know something, that meant I needed to go and learn more and do something more. That's the way I've always approached life. Rather than cram for a final exam, I try to do everything I can to prepare uh, so that when it does, when it, the test does come, uh, I'm I'm ready for it. And, and it's an accurate measurement and not just a measurement of what I may remember from the night before. Uh, so to your question about life, and if I knew I were to die tomorrow, I wouldn't do anything different. I, you know, I'd make some phone calls and, um, and tell people goodbye, but no, I wouldn't change the way I'm living because I've anticipated that I'm going to die at one, some point, And I, I hope that I'm ready for it when that time comes. Yeah. What a great answer. Do you believe in life after death? In some form, yeah. Again, I, you know, I don't pretend to have any uh, any profound universal knowledge, but I do think that the, that this body is a, a temporary experience. Whatever animates our body when it when it leaves our body is going to return to the source, and that source being God, and and, and it'll have some kind of existence as it were, you know, within that context. I don't know what, what that context is or what it'll look like, um, but I don't believe that, I don't believe that, that the body is our life and when the body dies that everything is gone. Right. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today, Dennis? 
three things about life. I know for sure that it can be really confusing at times. I know that the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we always have a choice of how we deal with whatever circumstances. So uh, we can choose to uh, let those circumstances sit on us like a ton of bricks, or we can take those circumstances as a pile of bricks and start putting them and stacking them in a correct order so that we can, you know, build whatever kind of house we want to build. We, we can use those circumstances to build a better life, or we can use those circumstances as excuses for, you know, why we can't do anything. And I know that that is a choice, um, and it's a choice we face all the time, every day. And I also uh, know that life is... Um, Life is easier when when you've got a family that you can count on and that you can rely on. Those things I know for sure. Really, really wonderful. Thank you so much for your presence, your wisdom. It has been a meaningful and insightful conversation. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, well, you can. I have a website, dennishouchin.com, and that's where you find information about um, my speaking engagements. Uh, my book is on Amazon.com or any place that sells ebooks. And it's again, it's a free download, so in any format you need. And my other book, The Achievement Protocol, is available on Amazon.com, and and that is a small price for that. And but uh, that's where all of my stuff is at. And uh, I'm happy to come and talk to groups. Really great. Thank you so much again, Dennis, and we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dennis Houchin, please visit his website, dennishouchin.rocks. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>